The new Willy Wonka Golden Ticket Games from the Virginia Lottery are here. The Scratcher gives you the chance to win up to $100,000. The online game gives you the chance to win up to $1 million. For more information, visit VALottery.com. Hi, I'm Anna Marie Cox, and welcome to With Friends Like These. I want to apologize to people who are expecting a FAQ episode this week. Uh, We were going to do Frequently Asked Questions, but it turns out that I like that idea so much I wanted to put a little more time into it and do it right, which is, by the way, why you still haven't seen my second novel, but I promise we will do a FAQ episode. Instead of doing that, we're running my interview with Amy Chosick. If you are a person interested in politics, you know her name because she was the New York Times lead reporter on the Hillary Clinton beat for three years, long before the campaign even began. You might also have been seeing her around lately because she's written a book about the experience of covering Clinton called Chasing Hillary. And that book is now a bestseller, and she has done the rounds that bestselling authors do, the morning shows, the late night shows, and other podcasts that I shall not name. Now, I'm not usually interested in talking to someone who has been talking to people as much as Amy has, but I was really excited to have her on because I think the conversations that she's been having about the book, well... They've mostly been about just Hillary Clinton. If they've been about Amy, they've been about how Amy and the Times covered her and about whether or not Amy has been fair. And they've been a bit about some of the darker aspects of the campaign that didn't get reported in real time. The group of toxic male aides that surrounded Hillary, for instance. But Amy's book, which I loved, isn't just about Hillary Clinton. It's as much about Amy as it is about Hillary. And they both turn out to be pretty delightful. They're both hilarious and wry, self-knowing and humble. And Amy writes about a Hillary Clinton most people didn't see covered in the news. And she also writes about herself in a way that we definitely didn't see in the news. That's why I asked her to start the interview with a reading from one of the most powerful sections of the book. Here it is. Flint, Michigan, February 2016. Saint or sinner, moralist or Machiavelli, Mother Teresa or Lady Macbeth, Diane Blair wrote in a 1996 journal entry, Hillary, like most of us, some of both and much in between. The black block letters on the low-hung billboard hovering over the awning of a Metro PCS store, the only vibrant retail I saw in Flint other than a pawn shop and a funeral home, if a funeral home can count as retail, read, Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, Romans 12.12. It was Sunday morning, 48 hours before the polls opened in New Hampshire and 730 miles away. Most of the travelers stayed behind in Manchester, but I'd made my way to Flint so I could go to church with Hillary. The water crisis had become a national health emergency, and Hillary was still one of the only politicians and the only candidate really talking about it. In the church bathroom, as Reverend Kenneth L. Stewart delivered a sermon about Flint being on God's waiting list, I saw a little girl in braids and a white dress perch on her patent leather tippy toes to wash her hands. I ran into the stall and sobbed. 
The flint trip slapped me upside the head and woke me up from my fights with the guys, my wrestling over bylines, all my unimportant coastal concerns. I went to Flint mostly because I wanted to see Hillary in a different setting after so many town halls in Iowa and New Hampshire where almost everyone was white. The Flint trip signified the next stage of the race when she would rely on black voters. Critics would describe the visit as the most jarring example of Brooklyn's over-reliance on identity politics and Hillary's over-reliance on the black voters who elected Obama twice. But when I got to Flint, it didn't feel like pandering or identity politics. It didn't feel like politics at all. A woman told me she'd miscarried twins. A mother of four said her eight-year-old son had been bright, smarter than most in his first grade class, until the lead got into his blood. A man pulled up the sleeve of his maroon suit jacket to show me the chalky white rash that ran from his wrists up his arms and wouldn't wash away. I asked Bobby Blake, a pastor at another local church, if people thought Hillary was there because she needed black votes. I don't care why she came, Blake told me. This town has been living out of a bottle. My question is, where's everybody else? For over a year, I would go to at least one black church with Hillary almost every Sunday. We went to black churches in North Carolina, Mississippi, Tennessee, Kansas City, Texas, and Brooklyn. I started to learn the rhythms, how Hillary would always step to the pulpit, take a deep, freeing Sunday morning inhale, and then open her remarks with Psalm 118.24. This is the day the Lord hath made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. She'd talk about working to end systemic racism, and well before the general election, she shat all over Trump's slogan, America has never stopped being great, she told the great Imani Cathedral of Faith in Memphis. When the choir belted out glory, glory, hallelujah, I couldn't help but shake my shoulders. I pretended to look down at my phone as I bowed my head and mouthed the words, lift every voice and sing. When all the politics and caution were stripped away, Hillary was, at her core, a Methodist, a church lady, a fire and brimstone, Jesus saves believer. When I try to tell people this, they always say she's just another pandering politician. Trust me, you don't quote the prophet Mika in mid-conversation because you're pandering. You can't fake extended allusions to the eight beatitudes of Jesus, as she did during a town hall in Knoxville, Iowa or casually quote the Jesuit academic Henry Nowen's parable on the prodigal son during a CNN town hall, as Hillary did in response to a rabbi's question in Manchester. Regardless of how hard the days are, how difficult the decisions are, be grateful. Be grateful for being a human being, being part of the universe, Hillary told the rabbi. Be grateful for your limitations. Thank you so much. Thank you. I absolutely love that somewhat, it's actually kind of a brief section of the book, but I absolutely love it. And when I told you I want to do a reading, you also, your mind went to that section. Yeah, it's a, and it's a section, well, thank you for that. And it's also a section that I don't think has gotten, you know, a lot of attention. A lot of people gravitate to the, the tense parts of the book and the sort of Hillary on Sunday mornings and, and at her core being a method. I think it's an important chapter that not a lot of people have picked up on. So I was glad you wanted me to read from it. And the reason that I love it so much is not just because it, it's a it's about a part of Hillary that I also feel like I did see some of during 
the campaign. It, it wasn't written a whole lot about. You're right. Like, but, it, it, you know, it was definitely there. And also, to the extent it was written about, it tended to get written about pretty cynically, mm-hmm. you know. Um, like basically everything about Hillary is written somewhat cynically. This is actually refreshingly earnest uh, for a campaign book that I think, you know, let's go ahead and uh, spoiler alert has some cynicism in it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> this is a really earnest section. Yeah. I mean, it was really important for, for one. I mean, looking back on that period in the primary it was a very difficult period for Hillary when she you know, hardly, barely won Iowa and then was about to lose New Hampshire by double digits. And it was a difficult time for her and her campaign. And that trip to Flint, I guess, really stood out for me. I mean, all of the trips to church with Hillary stood out because I felt like between the hours of 10 and noon on a Sunday morning, we just saw a totally different side of her. But particularly Flint, because I did feel, you know, a lot of the book is explaining some of the biographical stories I did on Hillary about her work as a young activist. And to me, that kind of young activist person came out. And for all of the kind of debate over who the real Hillary is, I felt like I saw or got closest to those glimpses often at black churches and particularly in Flint, where the community was just crying out for someone to pay attention to their crisis. And the other reason I I gravitated towards that section is it's a place where, I mean, it's a, it's a campaign memoir. So of course, like this is a book about you um, uh, and your relationship to Hillary, but you are present in a news story in this section. Like you wound up writing about this stuff, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You wrote about this trip, you wrote about her, but this is sort of a behind the scenes look at what you were going through as that stuff was being written. Yeah, you're right. In a way, it kind of woke me up as well. I mean, I had been very concerned with getting scooped as political reporters are over, you know, the next campaign move or inside the campaign drama. And, you know, we get very caught up in um, in bylines and all of the things that, that we get caught up on. And, and going there, you just I was just sort of slapped aside the head of the real concerns and issues deeply impacting people's lives. Yeah, I have that um, quote in the in the passage about being slapped upside the head to wake you up from fights with the guys and your coastal concerns. I have that underlined and starred and everything because I think some, as someone who no longer covers politics from the inside, you know, I live in Minneapolis. For the most part, I, you know, cover politics um, from, from here, right? Uh, and it does, the, the, the difference between the sort of self-IC writing now and the self-IC writing when I was writing in D.C. is that I had trouble with, you know, not getting bound up in bylines and fights and, and squabbles with, you know, colleagues or or sources. And I think sometimes people, I don't know how aware most political reporters are of their blindness. And it was shocking to see you kind of cop to it right here. Yeah, I mean, I felt like I had to, you know, I just think it would ring really false if I kind of went through the book pretending I knew everything or I covered all of these issues, you know, as as they impacted people. I mean, it's impossible not to get. And part of, I think, the book, somewhat of a sub name was I'm from South Texas. I'm a product of public school in the middle class. And then you become this thing, right, this like member of the elite media. And it can be easy to start feeling sort of detached. And I think this election in particular really 
kind of made everyone aware of those fissures between the red state where we came from and the blue state that we ended up in. I mean, the Flint is a little bit different. It wasn't a red state, blue state thing, but it was definitely a what's, what do people feel like on the ground. Do you feel like you were able to keep that, um, and th- there's actually a word for this, that wokeness with you as throughout the rest of the months of the campaign? That scene takes place in February 2016. Um, you know, it came and went, I think, as I talked to different, um, you know, as I talked to voters, um, certainly you would talk to someone who, um, you know, couldn't afford to send their kids to college or who couldn't. Uh, afford the maintenance and was going to lose their home. I mean, I'm sorry, couldn't afford the mortgage and was going to lose their home. I mean, certainly there would be moments of that, but I think it's very hard to, um, especially when you're embedded with the campaign and you're around other reporters all of the time. All the time, I think it's hard. Um, you know, I tried, <laughs> but um, but it's hard. I certainly, um, yeah. Of course, I, I wavered between being in touch and and being out of touch for sure. You know, uh, the book is very funny about the experience of being in the bubble, being a traveler, capital T traveler, um, with the campaign. I, I won't, um, I'll, I'll leave some of the comedy, you know, to people who should definitely pick up the book and actually read it. Um, and there's like a lot of scenes about the, the tragedies and traumas and, you know, uh, you know, escapades you get into when you're doing that. But one thing that really comes clear is that it's a traumatic experience to be covering a presidential campaign. And let's not, I'll put it on the scale of traumas. It's not very, it's definitely a first world problem, as we say. But like, you actually do put yourself and everyone who's covering a campaign, like puts themselves through a lot. Um, You know, sleeplessness and, you know, over too much caffeine. You you actually, you had your mom send you some of her Xanax prescription. Um, You know, so... There's a lot of pushing your body and pushing your mind and, and you know, in close quarters. And I wonder, and as to having stepped back and, and, and read the book, and this is an honest question. Do you think that that's how we should be covering campaigns? I mean, I think I think another you know theme of the book is certainly the evolution of the campaign bus and where is it's what is its role in the ecosystem? I mean, I think certainly reporters can put themselves through physically grueling situations if they're getting the best coverage, if they're telling readers something they otherwise wouldn't know. Um, and certainly, you know, I was people have expressed sympathy for how the Bernie bros uh, bullied me online and things like that. But, you know, I wasn't covering a war, to be clear. I wasn't afraid for my life. So right. I hate to ever, you know, put myself in that category. But I would say that um, I think all of those, the physical difficulty of covering a candidate and keeping up with their schedule, you know, makes sense if you're getting something (laughs) that's of value to readers. (laughs) I think that when you had a candidate, I mean, I write that like by the time Hillary's press corps was predominantly female because we had this historic girls on the bus, predominantly female um, traveling press corps, the role of the press corps had been vastly diminished. It was, you know, either a stroke of bad luck or a slap from the patriarchy. But um, you know, we had Twitter and live streaming, and I think more than ever, reporters felt like you could cover this election from your cubicle. That what you know, what are you getting out of being on the bus? I mean, to me, the fun of covering a presidential campaign is traveling the country. I mean, but between 2008 and 2016, I've been to 48 states uh, that my employer has paid for. So. Um, you know, that's that's an incredible experience. But being trapped on the bus, these long hours, getting no access. I mean, with the case of Hillary, no one even authorized to speak for the campaign. Traveling with us, it felt much more protective, much more what if something happens, which I understand from, for TV reporters. But for my purposes, I yeah. could hardly make phone calls or write stories in those situations. 
Yeah, it seems to me like for the for what you get out of it, that being, you know, on the road with a candidate doesn't seem like the the value of it is to talk to voters. And that's something you could do, you know, not traveling with a candidate. Um, they, that's, in fact, you know, something a lot of people, a lot of I know reporters who dipped in and out of the campaign trail, like that's what they would do. They would like mainly talk to the can't let's talk to the supporters. And then, you know, if you if you are not going to get access to the candidate, what's the point? And I should say for people that don't know, protective pool, which is what you referred to, right, mm-hmm. um, is the pool that travels with the president kind of no matter what in case something bad happens. Right. Like that's right. the it's not actually to protect the president. Or I'm the candidate. But I would even say, I mean, yeah, yeah, interviewing her supporters, it's actually it is helpful. And I talk to voters all the time before, you know, it gets to be so um, quick during the general election. You're traveling in the motorcade. I mean, you're kind of like ushered in and ushered out. And it's hard to even do those interviews. But I would say, you know, I only I only could talk to voters who were already at a Hillary Clinton rally. So we we knew where they where they stood. You could certainly talk to them right. about why they were supporting her and what was important to them. And and I did that every chance I got. But I didn't talk to I couldn't talk to any Trump supporters. I couldn't talk to the protesters outside because we were ushered back onto the bus in the motorcade. So even even inter, even getting a real cross section of voters is difficult, I think, when you're embedded with a campaign. Yeah, I mean, I just sort of I guess I lean towards I, I wonder if the practice should be looked at again. I'm also kind of anti-White House correspondent, so laying all my cards on the table. Um, I think there's a lot to be said for having people who cover certain beats do the reporting on certain events. Um, But I don't want to get touched on that, actually, although I have a rant in me somewhere about it. So you may have noticed that many of our sponsors' products are revolutionary or game-changing or even life-changing. But not today, because today I'm talking to you about Oatly, the small oat milk company from Sweden that's been around for 25 years, making a quite simple and boring drink, oat milk. And now that simple and boring oat milk is available in the U.S. for the first time. So if a milk alternative made from oats is something you'd consider, well, maybe give Oatly a shot. If you're not that into the concept of oat milk, it's going to taste exactly like a boring oat milk. And if you are into the concept of oat milk, it's going to taste like a really, really great oat milk. Either way, your life will most likely not be changed. But if any of this has made you curious about oat milk, well, Oatly has a website. Again, not revolutionary or anything, since every product in the world has a website. But this one is about oat milk. And you can check it out at Oatly. That's O-A-T-L-Y dot com. Again, O-A-T-L-Y dot com. And look for Oatly at your local supermarket or your favorite coffee shop. Oatly. It's it's oat milk. Journalist Mehdi Hassan is known around the world for his televised takedowns of presidents and prime ministers. He hosts Upfront on Al Jazeera and is a columnist for The Intercept. And in his new podcast, Deconstructed, Mehdi unpacks a game-changing news event of the week while challenging the conventional wisdom in a tight 30-minute package, a little quicker than what we do here. He starts his show with his take on one topic and what the mainstream news is getting wrong or what context is being missed. And then he goes into a deep analysis and conversation with his guest or guests of the week. And get this, his guests have included Judd Apatow, Bernie Sanders, and Hassan Minhaj. So he kind of covers the gamut, 
I would say, in terms of who you might be expecting. Um, it's everyone from comedians to politicians to, for instance, Stefan Clark's fiance. So you're going to hear from a lot of different people. And the show has covered such topics as the violence in Gaza from the perspective of Israeli activists against the occupation and, of course, police shootings, as through the eyes of the fiancé of Stevon Clark. Also, he's talked about the dangers of John Bolton with former diplomats. As a Brit and a Muslim, an immigrant based in Donald Trump's Washington, D.C., Mehdi Hassan gives a refreshingly provocative perspective on the ups and downs of American and global politics. Deconstructed is a show that cuts through political drivel and media misinformation to give you a straight take on one big news story of the week. It is out every Friday, just like this pod. You can listen and subscribe at theintercept.com slash deconstructed or on any podcast platform. Let's get back to the book for a second and that excerpt and the fact that you're in it and you have this moment of, of being tearful in a moment of kind of getting caught up in the hymn. Um, this is an intensely personal book. Mm-hmm. Uh, in one of the opening scenes, you are talking to your OBGYN about harvesting eggs. Um, and you are in the position to have eggs harvested. That's one of the most intimate places a person can be. <laughs> what has it been like for you to put yourself out there in this way in this book? Um, it's been incredibly vulnerable, to be honest with you. And I actually, I spoiler alert, but I had a baby um, right around the time of the book <laughs> coming out. So it was like sort of the two most emotional, vulnerable things I've ever put myself through came at the same time. Incredibly blessed, but also it was a bit, it was, it was emotional. You know, I think the... Um, I think the more people read the book, they get that the kind of personal aspect. I always thought of this as sort of Julia and Julia, but politics instead of cooking, this kind of figure that took over my 20s and 30s. Um, but initially, uh, when the book leaked, it was the kind of salacious inside the campaign details that got out. And I completely understand that. But then I think when people thought, is this game change? And why is why is the author talking about freezing her eggs? You know, it was a bit of a, I think initially was a bit of a hard sell for some, you know, political junkies who were thinking it was going to be another kind of inside the campaign book. I mean, I wanted to do something very personal. I think I felt like we had this confluence of the first woman with a real shot at the presidency, a largely female press corps, you know, more women vote, more women read books, and yet all of these great campaign books that I'd read in the past um, were all written with this voice of great men getting inside the campaigns of other great men. And so this was a chance to write, you know, what's it like to cover the first woman president when you're also negotiating all these things in your own personal life. And to a certain degree, I, I think a thread that runs through the book isn't just about how she defined your life, but a certain degree of identification between you and Hillary. Um, you're very candid about your own ambition in the book, like the reference in that reading to the wrestling over bylines. Mm-hmm. Um, you talk about how easily manipulated you are by your editor um, when she threatens to take away a front page story, um, how you you know, walk off the plane to file the story or you know, change your schedule, you know, leave your husband, whatever you needed to do. Um, and I, I think you also uh, talk you know, pretty frankly about um, really admiring the Saint Hillary, the, the Hillary that is the Methodist um, uh, activist. I mean, did you feel that as you were covering her that there was a sort of parallel between you? 
Um, yeah, I mean, this was always the tension in covering Hillary. You know, I could see Hillary in the moment as the candidate who ignored me or who, you know, couldn't get a straight answer to give us when we would ask her tough questions or would just go weeks without press conferences. I mean, there was like that Hillary who frustrated me. But then I had done so much reporting and continued to do through the campaign on these different chapters of her life. So there would be, you know, the Hillary who went undercover in Alabama in the 70s to investigate uh, school segregation. She posed as a housewife trying to enroll a white child in a school and was assured that no black students would be admitted. I mean, th- there were these chapters of Hillary's life that I identified with. Another one was when Bill Clinton lost re-election in 1982 and Hillary was, sorry, 1980, and Hillary was a young mother with a nine-month-old baby who had to find a place for them to live, who had to put in extra hours at the Rose Law Firm, who was really just a working mom with a husband who was home, you know, just stewing over his over his loss and with his future very uncertain. So there were these chapters of Hillary's life that I did identify with. I mean, at the end of the book, I I um, mentioned this scene when she found out she was pregnant, and uh, and I had just found out I was pregnant. And I think I think a lot of women, um, even if they have complicated feelings about Hillary, you know, working women saw themselves in her or saw some aspect of their life in her own struggle, and that was something that I I had in the back of my head, even as kind of the Hail Hillary, the 2016 candidate, uh, frustrated me. And we had our obviously had a tense relationship, which I get into heavily in the book. And I would also add that I think another parallel between you is uh, the idea of being a compassionate misanthrope, which is how (laughs) Hillary describes herself in a letter from college, right? Yeah. I mean, those letters are, are, you know, they'd been out, but they were something I kept drawing on again and again, thinking about, yeah, I did think about myself in that in that period and and think, oh, she kind of summed up how I felt when I didn't have any friends in Austin. yeah. Oh, I, I want to hear. I want to hear you talk more about being a compassionate misanthrope. I love it. Oh, oh no. I was going to say there's a scene in you know New Hampshire when um, when her campaign was so mad at me and even her like policy minded aides were stopping me in the hallway of the hotel to scream at me and about how terrible my coverage was and and I um, you know and I was also reporting this story about her going undercover and she w- in in the seventies when she was in law school and she went to. She went to Atlanta and she rented a car and she drove to Dothan, Alabama by herself and checked herself into the Holiday Inn. And I was like walking out in the cold of New Hampshire thinking, you know, I really but I really like that Hillary. And I think maybe she would have liked, you know, she would like me, too. <laughs> I think that um, I I definitely identify with being a compassionate misanthrope. That's a good description of myself. And That's also, great, I love that you it's have a, a great description. I hate I <laughs> Yeah. And you have a chapter entitled I Hate Everybody um, or I Hate Everyone, which is actually like a phrase that my friend Tracy, who you know, (laughs) um, and I use. We have abbreviated it to I-H-E. And that's the thing that that. we say to each other when when we feel the way that you felt, (laughs) um, you know, when everything feels like it's going to shit and when when your misanthropy like just is surging inside you. Um, it just, uh, I-H-E. I think we actually at one point had sweatshirts made that said that on it. Um, oh, my God. I'm stealing that from you. My, <laughs> um, I I think that's really interesting in part because, so you do talk about being, you know, Jewish, uh, sixth, sixth generation Jewish person from Texas and um, feeling kind of like an outsider. And I think that there's a certain degree, I, I have that stripe in me, too, Um like I, I've always felt like I never quite. I'm also from Texas, by the way, which I don't know if oh, you yeah. know. Oh yeah, Austin. Um, right? I'm from 
I'm from Austin, though. Yeah. So Austin is, is of course, a, a little bit of a place that's it's a little more tolerant of um, weirdness. But I did go to high school specifically in Round Rock, which wasn't a oh, part yeah. of Austin at the time. Yeah. It definitely didn't feel weird. Yeah. I think as I was reading this, I was like, you know, she's putting so much herself out there. You know, there is this scene of you getting an OBGYN exam. Um, there is a uh, frankness about your not always incredibly noble motivations for doing things. Mm -hmm. There's um, inside scenes of your marriage and like some of the bumps that it hit because of your having to, or I shouldn't say having to, because of your choice to Mm -hmm. cover Hillary with the dedication that you did. Um, I was thinking like that takes a little bit of somebody who feels a little bit like an outsider, put themselves out like that. Mm. But I'm wondering, do you feel even more like an outsider now? Like there was a little bit of blowback from your Times colleagues to to the book, to some of the your, you know, willingness to go back and examine your own part in the coverage, it seems like drew some fire. Yeah, I didn't hear that directly. I, I did read that BuzzFeed article. So apparently there was. <laughs> um, I didn't hear any of that. Um, directly. But, um, you know, I think another Texas woman that I think you admire a lot, Mary Carr, um, is an amazing memoirist, and she wrote a great book about memoir, and one of the, you know, one of her pieces of advice really stayed with me, and it was, what would you write if you weren't afraid? And so I wrote that on a sticky note, Mm -hmm. and I had it on my laptop um, as I wrote this book, and I just had to think, well, what would you write if you weren't afraid? And of course, you know, then I hired a fact checker and you have an editor and you scale things back. But the initial draft, I just had to put it all out there. I just think that memoir doesn't really work if you don't do that. I mean, I can't imagine how a memoir would land about covering 2016 if I was just like, oh, then the press did everything right. And, you know, we 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 <laughs> we sure saw that result coming or whatever it was. Um, I think it would ring really false. I just think it wouldn't work. I, I mean, the second I decided this was going to be personal, I sort of knew that I had to I had to be very I, I also think you can't criticize the mistakes Hillary made, the mistakes the campaign made um, without also examining my own mistakes. I just think that would ring really false as well. So I knew I had to put it all out there and kind of see where um where it fell it fell. And and yeah, there were there have there has been, you know, I think there's been a lot of surprise at the candor, um, the honesty, but again, I just don't think it would work. I mean, thinking about a writer like Mary Carr, her candor and honesty has to be about the people she loves, about her family. You know, this is like, of course, your colleagues become sort of a surrogate family, but at the same time, you know, hurt feelings professionally, I think are different than things other memoirists grapple with, which is person personally hurt, you know, hurting people or writing about people um, you're related to, which would be, I think, even harder. And it's interesting you mentioned, you know, we're talking about reviewing mistakes um, because the idea of, you know, one is the mistakes one makes, the mm-hmm. being forged in the crucible of your mistakes is the quote that you keep on your, used to keep on your computer, mm-hmm. I guess, right? Mm-hmm. Um, is definitely another theme in the book. Um, even the excerpt I, I asked you to read, the, the ending, one of the reasons I, I loved it is the ending line, which is be grateful for your limitations, which I take as sort of another message about being grateful for our mistakes or finding meaning in our mistakes. Um, and there has been a lot of attention paid to um, the but her emails parts of your book where you, you speak kind of frankly about the degree to which you feel responsible and don't feel responsible for how that coverage went. And I wonder, 
you know, having talked about that and and with the idea of being forged in the crucible of your mistakes, how are you different now? Now that you've done all this examination and looked at all these mistakes for yourself, what is what is different about you now? Well, in terms of the emails, I mean, there's kind of two things. There's the coverage of her private server and then the thing I grapple with in a whole chapter of how I became an unwitting agent of Russian intelligence are these kind of foreign hacks. And I do think, you know, after that section in particular came out about how we dealt with the WikiLeaks and the Russian hacking in the election, um, there has been a, a debate. I mean, there's been a lot of blowback and debate and conversation, and I was, you know, glad to see that happen. I mean, certainly I do think I'm... Um, I think I'm more wide-eyed about I'm, – I'm more, sorry, clear-eyed about um, certainly that it, when that happens because we do think it will happen again. Um, and kind of the distrust between readers and the media and how we can um, heal those divisions, I think, is partly kind of explaining a source and their motivation. So if anything, I've learned that, you know, the stories about the Russian interference should have had a meaty and, – and a lot of them did – but a, a meaty – paragraph the third par- third or fourth paragraph explaining the source and their motivations and kind of how transparent can we be we can be more transparent with readers i mean that was so that was one thing that i kind of learned the editor who the editor of the wall street journal who told me that we're all forged in the crucible of our mistakes i mean i had made kind of a, a small but very embarrassing mistake in a in a story i wrote on the 2008 campaign that became just embar- an embarrassing correction and i guess her point was but yeah, we learn from those and we move on. And I and I think Hillary, I kept going back to that line with Hillary because I think she was very much forged in those battles and during the White House. And how much did she learn from them and how much did she sort of bunker down and develop this, you know, muscle memory of of dealing with the press? I'm curious about the writing part of this because mm-hmm. I, so I also love Mary Carr and I love that b- book about memoir that she's written. And I, I love this book. I think it's great. I really do. Um, I think it's one of the funniest um, and most intimate um, campaign books I've ever read. Um, I think it's, and I, I mean this in a good way, more like Hunter S. Thompson than Boys on the Bus. Um, if only because you're just very, really frank about where you're coming from throughout it. And I just wonder like, are you going to write more like this? That's what actually I was kind of thinking throughout this. I was like, I want to read more from this person when she covers politics. Well, thank you. Yeah. I understand the difference between writing for writing for, you know, the New York Times front page and writing a memoir. But this like I I wish I had read that Flint story in the New York Times when it happened. Rather than the like Timesy and Hillary Clinton delivered a speech in Flint today and um, well, thank you so much for that. And I do think I do think the Times has has kind of expanded the options for writing voicey first person kind of story behind the story things. Um, the Times Insider mm-hmm. and I have colleagues like um, Jeffrey Gettleman in Africa who also wrote a memoir, but he'll often cover a big story about the Rohingya and then write a kind of first person. And so I think there are more opportunities at the paper to do that than even there. And also I think in the midst Mm -hmm. of the campaign, you're obviously very cautious about what you're writing and putting yourself in the story and all of that. Um, But no, I certainly, you know, the book was very emotional and it was a roller coaster when it came out. And, uh, but the most gratifying thing has been the response um, to the voice. And, and it is something that I'd love to, you know, continue to write that way when it makes sense. Yeah. I just, cause I feel like, you know, (laughs) <laughs> I've I do feel like I'm getting a more complete portrait not to, of you and Hillary in this book than I got from 
the coverage that was done of her. Um, and I guess, you know, we're in this sort of weird moment of, of journalism being both incredible, you know, incredibly important, um, the thing that's keeping us from sliding into chaos, but also um, more and more precarious, right? Uh, and I think there's a lot of tension about, like, how much, um, like, basically, what is our role? Mm-hmm. You know, like, what is our role as journalists? Do you, f- have you thought about that? I mean, you have, like, a reference in here that is, we when you talk about the tale of two helicopters, and, and it, it's an, it's about how when Hillary used a helicopter in Iowa and how she was, you know, that made her dismissed as a rich person, distant from, you know, the, the everyday American. And then when Trump used a helicopter in Iowa, like it was like, woohoo, like the billionaire knows how to show his brand. And there's a little aside about how at one point when he was giving rides on the helicopter, he told a young, young boy that I'm Batman. And uh, you say everyone found that his- hilarious before we realized we were living in the dark night. So, I mean, it does seem like this Amy, memoir Amy, has a pretty firm grip on the dystopian reality of a Trump's America. Um, But I also know you're a Times person through and through. So I imagine you would push back on the idea of journalists having to do anything with the resistance. But it seems like you also know the stakes for what happens if journalists are not more actively pushing back against, you know, bad people. Yeah, or just covering things honestly. I mean, I'm glad you picked up on the helicopter moment because um, it's another one that hasn't gotten a lot of, you know, traction or, you know, people not discussed it on cable news, but it was a major moment for me to see the double stand. I mean, and it's easy enough to look back on the campaign and say, oh, yeah, there was that double standard. But as soon as Trump's helicopter landed, touched ground, and journalists were taking rides on it and saying, look at his connection to the working man. And I remembered Hillary's helicopter just being like the ultimate symbol for her elitism and her out of touch. She rented the thing. She didn't own it like he did. Um, And I just thought, God, do you have to have a penis to pull off the helicopter thing? You know, what is this? But um, and it wasn't like a, a, a very important story. It was a, it was some color from the state fair, but I think it epitomized something, came to symbolize for me something that happened through and through, which was this double standard that existed. And so, um, I mean, I don't know if I would say journalists need, I, I would, I don't think journalists should be part of the resistance, but I think in reporting, um, you know, I, I think we should be more aware of those double standards, certainly, and also just more aware of our targets. You know, what is the um, and I and I get back to like what you were saying about kind of be, being insular and being in this world of, um, you know, I think a lot of reporters try to break stories to impress Twitter or impress our circle of friends and kind of lose touch of what um, the big the big targets are impacting people's lives. And that's not just the Russia investigation, but, you know, how the Trump administration is reshaping the judiciary. Um, and, and, you know, this immigration crisis unfolding on the border. Um, I'm from the border, uh, from South Texas. And, you know, there was a, there's been a, a, a crisis with asylum seekers for a long time. And now, you know, obviously it's reached a breaking point. Um I guess my point is covering those things all the time. And so when they do reach a breaking point, we have that context. The truth is, most of us are brushing our teeth wrong or for not long enough. And we forget to change our brush on time. 
And that's because most brands focus on just selling you a flashy, gimmicky toothbrush rather than on just brushing your teeth. But not Quip. What makes Quip so different? Well, for starters, Quip is an electric toothbrush that's a fraction of the cost of bulkier brushes, while still packing just the right amount of vibrations to help clean your teeth. Quip's built-in timer helps you clean for the dentist-recommended two minutes with guiding pulses that remind you when to switch sides. Next, Quip subscription plans are for your health, not just convenience. They deliver a new brush head on a dentist-recommended schedule every three months for just $5, including free shipping worldwide. Quip also comes with a mount that suctions right to your mirror and unsticks to use as a cover for hygienic travel wherever you take your teeth, which is, for me, almost everywhere. And finally, everyone loves Quip. They were on Oprah's O-List. They were named one of Time's Best Inventions. And it is the first subscription electric toothbrush accepted by the American Dental Association. Plus, they're backed by a network of over 20,000 dentists and hygienists and hundreds of thousands of happy brushers use Quip every day. Quip starts at just $25. And if you go to getquip.com slash friends right now, you'll get your first refill pack for free with a Quip electric toothbrush. That's your first refill pack free at getquip.com slash friends. Spelled G-E-T-Q-U-I-P dot com slash friends. You know, it's funny. Like, I mean, I I defended you on Twitter during the, the when this book came out um, because there was, I almost don't even want to get into it. There was this to-do about Chelsea's hair that if people want to find out about it, I guess, like, go Google. There probably is, you know, there's articles. Um, and people assumed we were friends. Which I guess, you know, maybe that is something, you know, friends would do. I, I would hope that you were defended by friends, but we're not really friends. Like we have a friend in common, mm-hmm. I guess. And I had read the excerpt for the book and I already loved it. And I already felt like this vulnerability that you were showing and willingness to question um, what you had done and uh, uh, what your role was just should be defended. You know, like that's what we want more of from journalists. We want, we don't want journalists to, um, be just, you know, mindless hacks and we don't want them to not ever question themselves. So I wanted to like be like, no, let Amy do this. Let's like, let's look at what Amy has to say. Um, so that I guess I'm prefacing all this by saying I both feel like I am intimately aware of who you are and your friend. So I should be able to speak frankly with you. But at the same time, like we're not, I know you're not my friend. So I'm like worried about like bringing up tough stuff. Does that make sense? Um, yeah, I mean, I know you got a lot of backlash for defending <laughs> me. I mean, I feel like we have we, we have a mutual friend. I've always admired your work and I like I've followed you. Um, and so, you know, I probably equally feel like I know you better than I actually do. So, um, I mean, feel free to ask me whatever tough questions you want. Um, I'd actually rather you defend my writing because you think it was important and people should pay attention to it versus like Amy's my friend. I mean, there was this like, like we're some kind of Heather's click and you're just defending me. Um, you know, I'd much, I'd much rather, which is so sexist, but for some reason Heather's was really in the ether then. Um, but, you know, I'd much rather you just come at it as like, I'm defending you because I think you said something that people need to pay attention to <laughs> and read. Well, like I so here's the uncomfortable thing yeah. I want to say that, yeah. I fe- that I feel like I, I'm a little weird about, which is that I'm a little disappointed that you're about your answer about what has changed you. 
from from writing this book and from looking back at your behavior because I get like maybe that's that's a big deal to be able to talk the, the stuff you said yeah. about the emails about going into these situations yeah. more wide um, more clear eyed and that I don't want to dismiss that because that's okay. incredibly important okay. and I do want everyone who covered you know 2016 um, to be more aware of um, the part they may play in election rigging yeah of course but I'm I'm like come on like. Well, maybe Tell I misunderstood me the question. You mean like me? So I, I guess I approached your question like you, you. I mean you. I mean you. Okay. I'm interested okay. in you. Like, because okay. also, like, I'll be honest. Like, Amy Chosick in the Times, I find much less interesting than you. Well, like, okay. This no, but I've this like I've book. done a lot. I did a well. I did obviously <laughs> a lot of interviews when the book came out, and there was you know often that question yeah. was always framed as like, what could the Times have done differently? What would you do differently if there were yeah. you know, as a journalist? So like I think I approached your question like I mean I'm I'm thank you for being interested in me, but usually that question as as, as I think from the perspective of like what would the Times do differently? So if you want to know how I'm different, I'm yeah. Happy I don't to- I don't care. <laughs> I mean, I mean, I care a little bit, but you're the person who makes up the times, which is another thing that's sort of interesting about this book, right? Which is that, I mean, all these people are kind of famous now, like all these times, you know, Maggie yeah. Haberman is now like my my husband, who's like not super political. is like, there's Maggie, you know, like first name basis, right? Um, <laughs> and you give depth to to not, to these people and you and yourself. And also you re- reveal like the reason why the times coverage was flawed is because you are yourself a flawed human being. Mm-hmm you know, forged in the crucible of your mistakes, who has her limitations that, you know, we must be grateful for our limitations and our chances to do things differently. So I'm not, I'm I'm interested in what Amy, you know, will do differently. Well, and also, yeah, like, what did you get? Like, what happened when you were, when you looked back at all this stuff? Yeah. Like, who, who are you now that is different than who you were then? It's weird. I mean, thank you for asking that. And, you know, the book was sort of was cathartic, was very cathartic. I mean, it was almost like therapy um, every day, staring at the pl- staring at the blank page, kind of contemplating um, how I spent my life for almost 10 years, you know, and, and, the, and then, you know, yes, seeing this enormous story unfold in Washington. And I was like all of a sudden in this solitary at my dining room table every day, just staring at the page. I mean, there was a lot of a lot of <laughs> wrestling, you know, with my, with with how I'd spent my um, career and this sort of climbing. I mean, I think in a way, and the book sort of ends in this way. I mean, I I I saw it as kind of the bookend, not just of my years covering Hillary, but like I scrapped and clawed and fought my way to get where I am. I mean, there's a, you know, chapters about how I grew up and in, in Texas and moved to New York with no job and no apartment and a stack of clips, and it was just like, um. I was so like scrappy and determined to get where I am. And I think it's weird in a way writing this book and also having a baby now. It was like, it's okay to step back. It's okay to step back, you know? And and for you to say that you like this type of writing, it was like, it's okay to kind of focus on the type of writing that I feel, you know, gra- that, that is very gratifying to me that might not be the big page one story um, and and focus on things that are more creative, Um but yeah, no, I definitely saw the book as kind of, well, that period's over. You know, I I have finished covering Hillary. I have, I am a mother. I am going to um, just kind of stop caring so much about getting that next job or that next byline. Um, you know, we'll see, but <laughs> we'll see if it lasts. But I, I've, I've felt different in that way um, because you can, you know, and this is something Hillary 
this speech I keep going back to um, that she gave in 1994 in Austin, um, uh, The Politics of Meaning, but she quotes Lee Atwater, and she says, you could acquire, when, when he was dying, um, you know, and he and he said, you can acquire all you want and still feel empty. What power wouldn't I trade for a little more time with my family? Um, so that's something I kind of went back to after Hillary lost that day of her concession speech. I just kept thinking of that Lee Atwater quote that she said in 94 when her father was dying and she was in the middle of the health care debacle and it was a very hard time for her. Um, but yeah, I think it, I think it did put things in perspective for me. I think this is Technically is that also an disappointing? Um, <laughs> that also disappointing. Uh, no, 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 no. Okay, but here's okay. here's I, I, again. I think this is technically an irony. Although okay. I, hate, I hate it when people misuse the word. Like, isn't this ironic? Um, but I think that this writing that you have done here um, is much more powerful in the way that it can change people and change minds than anything that's on the front page of the New York Times. And I and now you're I'm putting on my my like I, my resistance hat, you know, and thinking to myself, like, this is the stuff I want people to read about. Like, I want to, I want to give this I'm going to give this book to my Trump supporting in-laws, you know, because I think this might actually get to them. About who Hillary is and who the press is. Mm-hmm. I got into an argument with oh God, my I had I saw my in-laws over the weekend. And for the most part, we were successful, not time at politics. But there's this one part where my father-in-law went, uh, you know, I just want the news. I just want to hear the news, the news with no opinions. And and also, you know, like they make so much shit up. <laughs> and I got super mad about like him besmirching my colleagues, basically. Right. Um I want to give him this book so he knows like these are these is, this is who you're talking about. I know that's not a question. I'm sorry. No, the, bo- uh, the book is done. Like, it's funny. I've, <laughs> I've been surprised that like the Fox News watching uh, contingent has the book has been like pretty popular. Jesse Waters the other night held it up and said, I know this is insane. This is a New York Times reporter writing about Hillary Clinton. But I love this. It was, it was a crazy. He gave my book a big a big plug and I'm not sure why that is but maybe maybe to your point like this this is who this is who political reporters are kind of warts warts and all um it's not this and I it's not this kind of sanctimonious um holding you know speaking truth to power uh voice um I mean and that's not you know, and I might get criticized for that, but that wasn't even kind of why I got into journalism. You know, I explained that I just like wanted to tell um, tell good stories and explain the world to people. I mean, that was sort of how I that was how I approached my job when I was a foreign correspondent in Tokyo. And then it was sort of the same way with Hillary um, to tell good stories and teach them about this enigma of the wom- of a woman to kind of, I guess, ultimately better. Well, definitely to ultimately better inform them. Um, on who they're going to vote for. But I do think like there is this like sanctimony when we try to explain what we do that can rub people like your in-laws the wrong way, especially when there's so much distrust. Yeah. What do you think about that? I mean, you're you, you have a target on your back um, as a Times person. Um, uh, and in the book, you talk a lot about that's true because of Hillary and team, uh, the Hillary team's feelings about the Times. Um, but definitely, you know, failing New York Times from the president, mm-hmm. um, you, 
you you were a target of that kind of criticism as well. Um, do you have like conscious concerns about the future of such criticism and scapegoating? I mean, I think I think the danger there is that um you know, it gets so bad that a contingent of the population just does not believe the the press and believes that we make things up. I think that's a very dangerous proposition. And then I also think it's a very dangerous proposition. It's a very complicated question of how we kind of earn that trust back. Um, but no, I mean, it's certainly, I think there's a couple of things. I mean, it's certainly da- incredibly dangerous for the president of the United States to be calling us fake news and saying we make things up. Absolutely. Um, but, you know, it was also dangerous when the Obama administration was was um, hunting out sources and um, that was dangerous, too. And so I think now we're a little bit more, It's it's so it's so kind of theatrical with this administration that people are more aware of it and trying to earn back that that trust. Yeah, I mean, I just think yeah. about how to earn back that trust, yeah. um, and I, I am concerned that it's the default mode as far as how to earn back the trust comes uh, in the form of like more sanctimony, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know. Um, whereas I think that it should come with humility. Yeah, yeah. Uh, like you wrote a very humble book, you know, and, and I don't mean that. I mean that in the best way possible. I. I hope people understand that um, uh, in the 12-step programs, uh, humility is considered like this incredibly important thing and calling someone humble is like a huge compliment. Um, in the in our current world, that's not always the case. But I mean that as a huge compliment. Um, and I, again, like I think that humility is the way we would start to earn back trust. I'm not sure how that would get shown in the New York Times, though. No, but it's a good point. It's like... Um Sometimes defending yourself doesn't isn't a good look. Sometimes you should just like admit that you made a mistake and you know you're not perfect. I think there's a there's kind of and I understand the reflective instinct to defend all defend everything because we're up against an administration that is you know trying to dismiss journalists and it's very dangerous. But at the same time, I think you can actually earn more trust by admitting you messed up and you learn from it and you're a human being. Um, I mean, it's funny you mentioned the twelve step program because I I write in the book about one of my mentors david carr who passed away just as the campaign was starting yeah. but you know a lot of the advice he would give me in my coverage came from his um his experiences in, in aa and he would say you know compare and despair whenever i would be uh you know despairing about who got to write the the, the big story it was you know he would tell me to compare and despair um and so i think he'd I want to think he'd agree with you with the humility, but I did. I thought about his voice sort yeah. of as of when writing this, um, and kind of, I think his column did that. You know, admitted when we met when we messed up, held management accountable when he needed to. Another Minnesotan too. Yeah, David helped me get sober. Actually, yeah, he 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 helped me get sober. Mm. So, I'm, I'm also a big fan. Yeah, yeah. I didn't work with him very closely. But he was there for me when, you know, when other people weren't. Um, and he always had great advice. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, a lot of it now I realize was kind of cribbed directly from the shit old timers stay at meetings. Completely. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, <laughs> I, I can sound really wise, too, now. <laughs> um, but that's good. Does it, that's good advice. It's all good advice. There's also yeah. comparing your insides to other people's outsides. Mm-hmm. Um another one one of my favorites um well that's interesting because i i thought about that as well because 
you know, in this era, it's so easy to cultivate this image of yourself on social media, on Instagram, on Twitter, and you're like this personality and everything looks great. And I just think with memoir, you can't do that. You've got to show like everything. Um, You can't just cultivate the like beautiful um, filtered images that we do now. And that makes me think again of um, how do we cultivate um, trust? And I think it's through being a being able to show that you're not your your Instagram filter. Um, I, I and I don't know what that looks like for news gathering institutions. Um, you know, in my own life, I've decided what it means is I just lay my cards on the table about what I believe. You know, like I just I'm been fortunate to have a career where I get to be opinionated about politics and still write about it. Um, and I understand there are people who don't want to do it that way. But I think, you know, moving forward, like candor and transparency is probably going to be the way that that trust gets earned back. Um, I, if there's time to earn it back, you yeah. know, honestly, sometimes I worry that there's not even, we don't have that luxury. Yeah. No, I mean, like one of the, and again, I only read about the blowback at the Times on BuzzFeed. I haven't heard any of this directly, but one of the things was that, Apparently, some colleagues bristled that I portrayed us on the politics team of wanting to get on page one and like fighting for the big stories and that, you know, there wasn't enough of this, this, you know, the true purpose of journalism. And I'm just like, give me a break. You know, like, let's be honest about what it's like to be in an incredibly competitive environment. That doesn't mean that like the overriding motivation is, you know, to tell these important stories that 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 inform voters, but like day to day, I mean, yeah, I want to be above the fold, damn it. You know? So <laughs> I was surprised. But not that, anymore. I was surprised that like that was the thing that like like rubbed people the wrong. Like, how dare <laughs> she say that we are motivated by bylines? If you've been listening to the show for a long time, you've heard me talk about FrameBridge before because I have used FrameBridge before. Um, I had them frame uh, the personal note from Obama that um, one of the speech boys arranged for me to get on the occasion of my wedding. Uh, I also had them frame the Sports Illustrated story I did in December. So I've had them frame some unusual things and they've been incredibly helpful each time I did it. I, I've you know done the chat feature because uh, I wanted to let them know, you know, I, this isn't just a photo. It's not just, I can't just, uh, you know, send it to you in a box. I have to kind of explain to you. Very patient. They, they've done a great job with the design of the matting and whatnot. And you can use them to frame your stuff too. If it's one of those easy things, like with a digital photo, all you have to do is go to framebridge.com and upload your photo. But if it's not, they will send you the packaging to safely mail uh, whatever it is that you want to frame in in physical pieces. You can preview your online and any frame style. You can choose your favorite or get free recommendations, like I said, from their talented designers. The expert team at FrameBridge will custom frame your item and deliver your finished piece directly to your door, ready to hang. They were very cool about the stuff that I framed, too, because I got a little note saying this was a really cool item. Maybe they say that to everybody. But it was nice. It's nice to have a stranger affirm your life. Like I affirm you guys sometimes. Anyway, instead of for the hundreds of dollars you pay at a framing store, their prices start at $39 and all shipping is free. Listeners will get 15% off their first order at FrameBridge when you use my code FRIENDS. Again, that is 15% off your first order when you use the code FRIENDS. 
Get started today. Frame your photos or send the perfect gift for weddings, birthdays, and special events. I have done that as well. That is a fun way to use all of your random or not so random Instagram things. Put those filters to use in the real world. Send your best friend a quick snapshot. That's that's what I did. Go to framebridge.com and again, use the promo code FRIENDS and you'll save an additional 15% off your first order. Say it again, framebridge.com with the promo code FRIENDS. Use it. Gosh, if we had another half hour, I would pick a bone with you about you you saying repeatedly that Hillary didn't have a real reason to run. Oh, okay. Um, or could not articulate a reason to run. Okay. Uh, <laughs> so but that can did? be a part two of our conversation, maybe. I think that people don't make that same kind of criticism of male candidates. See, okay, I hear that. I hear that a lot. Um, but like, did you go back and watch Ted Kennedy in 1980 when he was reduced to incoherence? Because he could not explain why he wanted, he was asked, why do you want to be president? And could not spit out an answer. I mean, it destroyed his candidacy. I guess yeah. I, I don't understand. Yeah, I know. I mean, like, that is like literally one time when it was asked. But for yeah. the most part, I think it's always sort of taken as a given that like men have a reason to run. Um, I mean, I think he got asked that in part because the bar was sort of higher because he has this legacy aspect to him. And so people were more aware than usual of the amount of privilege involved uh, to think that you... Uh, can be president because there is an enormous amount of ego and privilege involved Mm -hmm. in thinking that you can become president, right? Yeah. Um, Just even in contemplating that idea, people are going to be different than you and me, I think. Yeah. You know, Um, and there's a certain amount of just like chutzpah to it, I Mm -hmm. think. Not, it's not, it has nothing to do with like wanting to change the world or having like a specific, you know, economic program, uh, you know, Bernie could talk like you point out that there were some blank spaces in Bernie's policy, you know, items. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, there is a, a point at which you don't want to be present because you think you can do the job. Right. You know. Yeah. But can you argue and that Bernie that had she, a very crisp. He knew where he stood, whether you whether he had. He, he did. And, but I think it's for her. It's like it's it's just a messaging issue yes. and not a personality no, that's, issue. I felt like it was like, a messaging issue. I mean, and I even say that in the book. I yeah. said I had sympathy for her. She, you know, had these values rooted in her Methodist faith and kind of social activism, but the details have become so muddled from, you know, I write about how when she was in the White House, they called the First Lady's office the Bolsheviks because she was opposing these, some of her husband's policies, welfare reform and NAFTA and things like that, but she could never say that publicly. And then she... There was just so much negotiating over the details and let's not piss off the Obama White House, but let's not piss off the left of the party. And yeah, it was a messaging problem, which is why I devoted like four pages to all those messages that they tested. Yeah. And I mean, I mean, it's just the the other tragedy is that, you know, she had run first, right? If both she and Bill were going to run for president and she had run first, I mean, it would have been much cleaner Mm -hmm. because... Part of the problem is that she just had 30 years of ambition and 30 years of different kinds of messages to choose from mm-hmm. in answering that question. So if it had been her running for governor in Arkansas and her running for president in 1992, I mean, I think the messaging would have been a lot simpler for her to get, get her head around. Oh, yeah. She had so um, much negotiating. I mean, she couldn't break with her husband and she couldn't break with Obama and she could, you know, and she wanted to not go too left to counter burning because then she'd alienate. I mean, it was just, there was, you could see it in her answers, you know, just so strained to come up with that 
perfect answer that was going to toe the line. I mean, to the point of, you know, she couldn't say whether men and women should split the check on on a date. It was like, in some cases they should, but in some cases they shouldn't. Um, I feel, I also (laughs) feel like she, you know, I think it was late. Well, the deplorables is a perfect example. I mean, it's like, here we are saying, if only Hillary said what she really thought and like, didn't poll test everything that came out of her mouth, you know. And I feel like the deplorables was, like, that's what she really thought. You know, I co- sort of wish she would have just leaned into that. Um, and she did it again. It was this talk in India. I haven't been paying that much attention to her, but she gave a, a speech in India, I think, recently, where she was characterizing Trump voters and gotten a lot of trouble. And it was like, no, she's she's saying what she thinks now, and she gets attacked anyway. So I heard you say you wish... Uh, she had done, you know, been more honest in her characterization. Do you wish that because uh, that would have made her a better candidate and, you know, more interesting to cover? Or do you wish that because she, that would have meant that uh, she might have won and you wanted her to win? Um, no, I think it would have made her, I think it would have made her better. I think it would have been a, a, a clear playing field. I mean, if if voters had a grasp of what she really believed, I mean, I think it was, it would have made her a better candidate, for sure. Um, I mean, it was hard to say. You know, I mentioned this uh, Bernie Sanders aide in Iowa, his top guy in Iowa, and the first thing Bernie asked him when he hired him was, do you understand my politics? Are you are you okay with my politics? And I just imagined, you know, I couldn't imagine Hillary asking, do you understand my politics? And even if she had, kind of what would that, what would that answer be? Um, and... No, I think it would. I think it would have made her a better candidate. I also think it would have given voters something. I hate the word authentic, but something kind of authentic to grasp onto. Versus, she's just she's not Trump. And I'm not saying all voters were gravitated to her because of that, but a, but a significant number in the general election didn't love her. But you know, couldn't st- couldn't stomach Trump. Um, and I think they would have had something to vote for. Um, at one point, right after she got pneumonia, she came out and said, you know, I'm done talking about Trump. My whole life has been about fairness for families and opportunities for kids. And that's what I'm going to close my campaign with. And I was like, yes, do that. That's perfect. But then, like, the next day we were talking about, like, Alicia Machado and, like, you know, I don't know what, whatever. Um, I think had he insulted Rosie O'Donnell and Hillary Clinton was, like, defending her. And I was like, oh, no, we're not we're not going to spend much time talking about <laughs> The other things. It's just I, I'm I'm hearing you say like, yes, I wish you had done that. And I'm just wondering, I think there are people that would hear that and think, oh, that's because you wanted Hillary to win. Right. But I think what you're doing is doing what a lot of political reporters do, yeah. which is that you're just being armchair political consultant. Oh, but can maybe. you separate out like. But I mean, like, did I want you Hillary even to win? I don't think I don't think you read this book and you're like, oh, she wanted Hillary to win. Um, I think I wanted Hillary to be the best version of herself, um, both because it would have made it more interesting to cover, and I think it would have made her more palatable to 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 Americans who misunderstood her. Um, but it wasn't like, did I want Hillary to win? Um, I don't know. I feel like everybody wants to assume that political reporters are like rooting for the as as kind of ardent about their horse as 
as everyone else's. And the truth is, is like part of my evolution in the book. I mean, I do mention then that very first rally that I covered in Iowa when I just got back from Japan and I didn't know anything about U.S. politics. Like I stood up and cheered when Hillary came in because it was exciting and everybody was standing up and I was back in America. Um, And then, you know, you get to the end of the book and I'm just as cynical as the rest of them. But I do think you sort of seed your ability to be really excited about any candidate because you kind of see them for who they are. Um, I remember in 08 covering Obama and you'd go in these huge rallies and there'd be a million people screaming and excited. And I was like, oh, that's interesting. Um, You kind of seed your ability to do that, I think, as a political reporter. And I'm sure there are people who would say, well, that's crazy. And, you know, that means you shouldn't be covering politics if you're that detached. But um, but I don't know. That's how I felt. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that there is, like I was saying, like I've sort of have my carved out my space in terms of how I feel like I can cover politics. Um, but there are people that are just temperamentally different. And I think that's you're one of them. Although we, I think we are we do share the compassionate misanthrope thing. I H E. I H E. Yes. I H E. So I think we're going to end it there. Okay. Uh, but I appreciate I, I, I appreciate everything. Thank um, you. And I, we have further conversations, I think, to have. Yes, definitely. Um, I, I, I actually did make it all the way through the book. So, um, but I figured I know how it ended. Oh, yeah. Um, you have spoiler. So. <laughs> Although. Um, but it is it's great. I, I Thank you. do hope you write more like this. I am. Um, I have been. I have heard from people who cried at the end, and not because Hillary lost, but because it. I don't know. So to, I, I'm curious. If you have time to finish it, I'm curious what you think at the end. Thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you so much for having me and for reading it and asking interesting questions. And that is it for today's show. I will keep my exit brief because hopefully you are off to enjoy what I guess is still the Fourth of July weekend. Please take care of yourselves, take care of other people if you can, and we shall be back next week. <laughs>